Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, welcome back to season two of Stop the Killing. And as promised in last week's episode, this week we are sharing with you more of our interview with the incredible former Columbine High School principal, Frank DeAngelis. Now, Catherine and Frank have known each other for many, many years having walked the hallways of Columbine together in their shared quest, really, to prevent future Columbines. And if you've landed on this episode by chance, then please, I do recommend going back to the previous episodes in this series so you can follow us as we explore just how far we have come since that Texas Towers shooting in 1966, and even since Frank ran towards the sound of gunshots in the corridors of Columbine High School in 1999. So if you'd like to hear the full interview, you can find it on our Patreon site. Head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. As usual, I will drop the link in the show notes. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Frank DeAngelis. We appreciate you calling in. You're so busy, I'm sure. So I would ask you this. How many interviews do you think you've done since Columbine? Since Columbine, I would say... Over thousands of interviews. And the thing that stands out in my mind, originally, it happened on Tuesday, April 20th. And the school district did a pretty good job protecting me. But finally, they said, Frank, you need to get in front of the cameras. And so on Friday, whatever date that was, the 23rd, I think I did uh, 17 interviews, starting at 5am in the morning and about three o'clock. And the thing that was crazy about it is, when Columbine happened, it was a beautiful spring day, about 70 degrees, blue skies. But after the event, the following day, it snowed for three or four days. And so we're doing these interviews outside. And the first interview I did, I think, was with Good Morning America. I don't know, Katie Couric, anyway. It was cold and uh, it was, snow was coming down and it was dark because it was 5 a.m. It was so bizarre because I remember the crime scene tape and it was snowing and, and a little bit of humor. I had on dress shoes thinking we were going to be inside. Well, I was freezing. And so there was someone that worked for communication, gave me some moon boots. So luckily they didn't pan down into the moon a little bit. And I said, keep that camera above my waist. I bet. Well, so that's why I was a little hesitant to to ask you to even talk to us because I figured you have talked to so many people about so many things. Well, um, you're a dear friend. And uh, whenever I get to spend time with you, it, I benefit from that. And you're very kind, Frank. You're a special uh, person in my heart because uh, I think we've, in our own ways, lived through a lot of different things. And I think that bonds people in a I certain way. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about doesn't have to do with Columbine. It has to do with what I know other people don't maybe realize about you is the fact that you often talk to people from other schools after a shooting has occurred. I'd love to just explore 
how you approach somebody when they are going through something that, you know, only a few of you really know what it's like. Well, Kate, it was interesting because one of the things I stated about a week after Columbine, I said, I just joined a club in which no one wants to be a member. Part of the reason that I reached out, I can remember it was after Columbine, I received a phone call from Bill Bond, who was a principal at Heath High School of Paducah, Kentucky, where they had a school shooting, I think, in 1997. And he called me and he said, Frank, you're not even going to remember me and make this call right now, but write down my number and in a few days, call me and we'll talk. And then there's another reason, and I'm a person of faith. And I can remember it was a few days after. And for the first time in my life, I was questioning my faith. I was angry. Everything I witnessed, I mean, I said, God, how could you allow this to happen? So Father Ken Leone, where I'd been a member of the parish, called me down. He said, Frank, come down to the church. I said, Father, I have nothing to give. I'm mad. I'm, he said, Frank, please, I ask you to come down. So I walk into the church and all of a sudden he calls me on the altar. And there's about 1,200 people in there. And a lot of my students who were part of the youth group, and he whispered something in my ear and he said, Frank, you should have died that day. You encountered the gunman, but God's got a plan. Now you need to go rebuild that community. You need to go help others when they need help. And God's going to be with you every step of the way. And so that's the reason that I, I just reach out to people. A few years ago, I got a phone call from the National Association of Secondary School Principals, and they said, Frank, we're thinking of starting a network, and it's sad we have to start this network, but it's called the Principal Recovery Network. And so I'm heading that up, and there are about 51 of us that have been involved in similar situations. So I'm trying to just pay it forward. I think, you know, you've done that through the years, and we're so thankful for that. But a lot of people can't carry that kind of water. That's heavy water to carry. So thank you for doing that. Today is February 14th, which marks the four-year anniversary of Parkland, and I called the principal, Ty Thompson, and we talked for about a half hour. So one of the things that I try to do is I tell them this isn't a one-time phone call, and I have it on my calendar on the day of the event. I call those people just to check in to make sure they're doing all right, because, you know, it's a long road. And I said, you know, it's a marathon and not a sprint. But something that was really relevant for me is the fact that, you know, in addition to my faith, it was right after I got a phone call from a Vietnam veteran. My mom worked for him. He was a chiropractor, John Fisher. And he called me within 24 hours and he said, Frank, you're going to find everyone needs you and you're going to be there to help everyone. But if you don't help yourself, you're not going to be able to help others. And I got into counseling immediately. And a lot of times people are hesitant because I even had people tell me, you know, uh, saying, Frank, if you do seek counsel, you better not tell anyone because they may deem you unfit for duty. And one of the things that I try to do when I go out and talk to people is say, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. I have a good support system in place. If I'm going to continue to help people, I need to make sure I help myself. That's fantastic. And I think that's a wise, wise move on your part. I can remember it was right after, and this did not make any sense to me. I had some people come up to me and say, Frank, you better not talk to those families. There's potential lawsuits. And I'm thinking in my mind, that's the last thing on my mind. I mean, these kids, their parents just lost their sons and daughters. Mr. Sanders passed away. And I said, you know, and my parents taught me this, and I truly believe this. Sometimes you have to stand up for what is right, even though you're standing alone. And I went to visit all the families that weekend. 
and wow. all the families that were there. And it was a right thing to do. And it was tough. You don't know what to say. I can't go up and say, gosh, I know what you're feeling. And they're thinking, do you really? Did you have to identify your son or daughter? And But I went there and we held each other and we cried. And when some people found out, I got reprimand. And they said, if you continue this behavior, you're going to be on your own. Well, I'm full-blooded Italian, so I was pretty stubborn. And I went back in about three weeks. Only this time I brought bouquets of flowers because it was Mother's Day. And I went to visit all those moms and Mrs. Sanders. And it was the right thing to do because it's going to be 23 years this April. I still have relationships with those families. You know, I think, unfortunately, you're kind of the the granddaddy in terms of the events, right? You've picked up the uh, mantle or maybe yoke and you're carrying it. But is that part of what you go through when it first happens is I don't want to carry this water? Right. I think it's tough. And one of the lessons that I learned is that we can all experience the same event, but how we deal with it, we deal with it differently. And I can even remember some of my staff and kids, you know, they wanted to talk about it. And then there were others stating, the sooner I get back to doing what I was doing prior is going to help me heal. And and then you had some people in between. And I think we see that with the pandemic right now, that there are people that are dealing with it differently. And the thing you have to do is make sure you take care of yourself because one size does not fit all. Frank, you wrote a book called They Call Me Mr. D, which is an appropriate title for your book. How did you decide to write it then compared to like before? What happened is my number one priority was to rebuild that community. And originally, I made a promise to stay for three years until the class of 2002 graduated. So it's getting close. I knew I had to make a decision. And I kept saying I didn't rebuild that community. And I can remember I was walking my golden retriever and I said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to make a decision that I'm going to stay until every kid who was in the elementary school graduated. Because even though they were not there, they were impacted by it. And so... 2012 is going to be my last year. I was going to retire. And mom calls up and said, Mr. D, you can't retire. You don't understand. My kid was in the first year of a two-year preschool program, so you need to stay. But it gets better. I'm getting ready to retire in 2014. And a couple of parents come up. And I said, you were in my history class in 1983. And they were uh, high school sweethearts. They got married. And they said, we just appreciate you as a teacher. And you were here for our three daughters here. And so they're pushing a little stroller. And I said, oh, that is so sweet. Is that your granddaughter? I said, no, it's our daughter. Can you stay until 2025? And I said, no, I'm out of here. It made me feel good that they weren't saying, gosh, when's he going to leave? When's he going to leave? So I felt when I retired that I did fulfill that promise. I teach a a class in the Second Amendment for DePaul University. I just had a speaker, Joshua Freeland. He was at Umco Community College. And Joshua was very frank about the fact that he was not in the room where the shooting occurred at Umco Community College, but he still suffers from essentially PTSD. He's been in counseling ever since then, that the impact is far beyond the room where somebody might get shot. And I think you point that out well. Yeah, it's important. When I have these conversations with the principals from schools, one of the first things I ask are you talking to someone professionally? And most of them are saying, no, that's one piece of advice I can leave you today. You need to get some help so you can help others. In addition to doing that, your wife or your spouse, significant other, partner needs to go to counseling. Because one of the things that I learned 
is after it happened, my wife, who I'd been married 17 years, said, you're not the man I married. And she couldn't understand it. And she said, you're the one messed up. I'm not, you know, and she wouldn't go. And unfortunately, went through a divorce. But if I had to do it all over again, she needed to be here to understand. If I was socializing, I didn't want to talk because people constantly ask, how you doing? How you doing? So what do you do? You withdraw. And that's why when I have those conversations, I said, you need to understand when word was out that shots were fired at your school or your community, they started wondering if you were ever going to walk through that door again. And you don't understand what they were going through. So, you know, I try to share some of my best thinking and, you know, this, I wear my emotions on my sleeve and I do. So I try my best. You do a great job at it, I think, but I'm biased. You know, and people tell me this all the time. They said, boy, Columbine needed Frank. But I tell them Frank needed Columbine because if I would have went somewhere else within three years or a year, I would always wonder what it was like for those people. And the thing that I'm most proud is we had a majority of our staff stay, which is very unique because I remember Bill Bonds telling me, he said, Frank, I will guarantee you within four years, 75% of your staff will go. And I said, that doesn't happen at Columbine. The thing I didn't realize is survivors of 9-11, survivors of events, they can decide whether or not to go back to the site. But anyone who decided to come back and teach at Columbine or students, they had to relive everything they experienced. I mean, there were kids and staff that couldn't walk down different hallways, you know, so there was that constant reminder. And one of the things that really helped me is I remember I had to return back to Columbine and I did walk back into the building four days after I was with an FBI agent and it was tough what I witnessed because it was still a crime scene. And then I could not go into the library for about a month. And my counselor said, Frank, do you want to go in there? And I said, I need to. And I knew things were messed up when I walked in the library and I spent about two hours with the FBI agent, and he described how every kid died, bloodstained carpet, uh, unfortunately, brain matter, uh, where the two had taken their own life, and I didn't even flinch. And that's when I realized I needed to make sure that I got the help I needed. You know, Frank, I was in that hallway with you, and Sarah hasn't obviously been in Columbine High School because she lives in London. But could you just give Sarah and our listeners just a brief description of those particular uh, moments? Yeah, I still get chills and you'll see why in a second. So I love cafeteria duty because I got to walk around to the kids and just sit down and talk to them. Well, that day I was late getting downstairs because uh, there was a teacher, Kiki Leva, and he was a student teacher at Columbine. And then we hired him on a one-year contract and I interviewed him the day before. So I was going to call him in the office and welcome him, Columbine family. Well, I couldn't find him. And so he's late getting to my office. So he sits down in my office and I'm getting ready to start the whole spiel. And all of a sudden my secretary runs in and the door was shut. And I still remember vividly that she face planted in this little window and I knew something was wrong. And she said to me, she said, Frank, there's a report of gunfire and it's not registering. I'm thinking, you know, senior prank, we're about a month away. And when my worst nightmare became a reality is I come out and Kiki goes down the other way. My secretary still struggles. 
because I ran right into gunfire and everything seemed to slow down. And I've had law enforcement saying, Frank, you're unarmed. Why would you run towards a gunman? I can describe so vividly what he was wearing. And Frank, let me set the stage for Sarah and our, our listeners. Your office is in the front of the school. Right. And there is a very wide, long hallway that runs all the way to the back of the school where, in fact, the shooters came up the stairway from the back near the cafeteria. So you would have first encountered them, but they were quite a distance from you, but clearly visible. Right. And the thing that was stands out in my mind is the fact that the barrel of that shotgun looked about the size of the cannon and everything slowed down. And I remember glass breaking behind me and shots being fired. And I can remember when Kiki and my secretary saw me on the street a few hours later, they were in shock because the last thing they saw was me running right towards a gunman. And so people are saying, why? One reason and one reason only, my kids were in trouble and had about 25 girls that were coming out of the locker room to go to a physical education class. So they were right at the crossfire. And so I run down there, the girls are kind of, you know, laughing and had no idea what was going on. And again, we didn't do any of these drills, but I've been there long enough that I knew if I got them in the gymnasium, there were some doors that would allow us to get outside. Well, we literally hear the boots getting closer, the sounds of the shots getting closer. Girls are in a state of panic. Everything's going as planned, but the gymnasium door is locked. And now the girls are screaming and uh, it's scary. And when I do my presentation, and Kate's seen this, I had about 25 keys on a key ring. And I'm old school principal. I dressed up. I wore a suit coat every day. I reached in my pocket. The gunman is getting ready to come around the corner. I reached in, first key, stick it in the door, and it opened it on the first try. And one of the things that was really interesting is it was, I think, about four years ago, Columbine was playing in the uh, state championship softball game. And so I'm there and a young woman comes up to me and I recognized her. She was one of those girls with me. We held each other and start crying. And all of a sudden she spins me around. She said, Mr. D, see that girl playing right field there? If you didn't find the key that day, she wouldn't be playing in this game. And I just said to her, I had very little to do in finding that key. And when I see those girls today, they say, I can't believe you found that key because we were trapped. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, 
or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Frank, those girls, they were in the hallway just to the side, right? The shooters were coming towards you, you knew, and the girls were coming out of a side door. So why did you have to open that door? There was no other way to get out because the intel was so bad. We had heard different descriptions and there were all these gunmen, so we didn't know where. And I knew that if I got them into the gymnasium, I would be able to lock the doors. They couldn't get in. And that's one of the lessons learned now that I share that the doors, the teachers had to come around on the outside to lock them with their key. And now in most schools or most buildings, you can lock from the inside because you want to be locked down in that area. And so I put them in this little area because I wanted to make sure that it was safe for us to get outside because there was a report of snipers surrounding the building. So when I stuck my head out, there were law enforcement people coming. I said, I need to go back in and get my girls. We had to climb a fence over to the park. And one of the most frustrating things, and Kate, I, I mean, I know you're blown away by this, but the protocol at the time was secure the perimeter. We had actually had a school resource officer, Neil Gardner, who was exchanging gunfire, but he was being told he couldn't go in the building until SWAT arrived. And that was one of the most frustrating things for the people, students and staff that were trapped, they're saying, don't leave, help is on the way. They're looking out the windows and here's all these responding officers, but no one's coming in the building. And they had to wait because that was a protocol at the time. And unfortunately, SWAT didn't arrive for about 48 minutes. And so when I got outside, this is how scary it was. They were planning their invasion in the building and they actually were asking me questions to draw a map of the school. And I couldn't even remember numbers on the classroom doors. And they were asking me, well, we're thinking of coming into the roof so we can go down the science wing. And I said, you're counting on me to give you the schematics. And I can remember the fire alarm sound was so loud that we couldn't carry in a conversation. And they said, Frank, we know this is beyond the call of duty, but would you be willing to put on body armor to go in the building to shut off the alarm? So I'm getting ready. And finally, they said, no one's going in that building. But, you know, talk about survivor's guilt. One of the things that I fell out later, Kate Banton was one of the lead investigators. And I said, I need to know everything. I, I just need to know. And what I found out, if Dave Sanders would have stayed in the faculty lounge that day, as most staff did, they locked down in there. He came up the stairs to help kids. And you saw him running up there and just looking at all the records and some of the eyewitness accounts. If Dave would have stayed in, I wouldn't be doing this interview because what happened is he was coming down the hallway to come to the main office. The gunman, as he was running towards me, stops momentarily and shoots Dave in the back of the head. And so that split second may have saved us, you know. And so there's so many things that you constantly play in your mind. What if, what if? And I finally just said, you know, it happened the way it did. It's tough. Is that the hard part, Frank, for everybody that you talk to is the what if game? 
Well, and here's this story. Rachel Scott was the first person killed. Uh, she was sitting outside with Richard Castaldo. Richard Castaldo was critically injured, but she was the first one to die. Well, that morning, her brother, Craig, they were riding to school together. He got in an argument with her. She kicked him out. That was the last conversation he had with her. In addition to that, he is in the library hiding under a table and two of his friends died on top of him. And he survived because he pretended to be dead. And so there was all this guilt with Craig. And we were so worried about him because of everything he experienced. Number one, the last conversation he had with his sister was not a good one. And then two kids died on top of him and he survived. And there were so many people that, you know, why me? Why did I survive? And -and so-and-so did not. And that was tough. Do you have any advice for uh, parents dealing with kids who uh, are in traumatic situations? How can they help the kids deal with it? 20 plus years later, parents wish that they would have been more persistent in getting help for their kids because what would happen a lot of time, these teenagers, they would say, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need help. And they really weren't. And they started self-medicating and they went down a dark path. And parents said, we wish we would have been more persistent. And I can remember having this conversation Parents called me up and they said, Frank, even though our kids did not die that day, we lost our kids. They will not talk to us. And we're talking to their friends and they're telling us, well, they were hiding in a freezer. They said, you have a pretty good report. Maybe you could talk to them a little bit. And I can remember over at Chatfield and I made the comment to them. I said, this is not going to make sense to you until you become parents. And I said, that better not happen anytime soon. But I said, When your parents, grandparents, aunt and uncles heard that there were shots fired in Columbine High School, hearts started racing because they were uncertain if they'd ever see you again. And I said, this is not going to make sense until you become parents. Well, I had a young lady, uh, Michelle Romero Wheeler, and she walks into my office and it was in the beginning school year 2012. And she comes in and she's crying and hyperventilating. I said, Michelle, are you okay? What's going on? And she said, Mr. D, do you remember telling us about being a parent? I said, yeah, but why today? And she said, it didn't make sense until about an hour ago. And my little girl starting kindergarten. And she said, I let her out of my car and here's all the teachers and the principal clapping. I put my car in park and ran and grabbed my little girl. And clenched her and a little girl saying, mommy, mommy, you're hurting me. She said, I set her down and I turned around and looked at her as she walked through those doors. And all I kept thinking, is there a chance she may not come home? And she said, I've been crying ever since. And so these lessons that you learn, you know, it's tough. You know, one of the things that we try to give people a sense of hope, because I think as as horrible as all this is, there is a lot of hope. I'd love it if you could recall the facts about the choir room and to share that with Sarah. 60 kids were in the choir room because they had vocal music, which was a big mixed choir. So I think there were 60 kids trapped in the small room and not sure what they were going to do. And, and they actually put things up in the ceiling blocks and they were able to retrieve those just to, because they weren't sure if they were ever going to see their parents again or their friends. I mean, it's just phenomenal what they went through. And now at Columbine, they actually have doors that if the event was to happen today, 
and they were trapped in this one room. There were doors that went from classroom to classroom that they could actually exit outside. And so I think one of the things, and I know Kate sees this all the time in constructing these buildings, they are constructing them for safety precautions. You know, something that you, you never think about. But one day I was standing outside of Columbine. And I, I uh, even hate to share this with you. And it might've been with John McDonald, uh, who's the executive director of security. I said, it's so sad that our society has come to this, but what would stop someone from driving a truck through these two doors down the hallway during a passing period? How many people they could kill without shooting anyone? And now I think you look at some of these buildings and facilities, you have planters, or you have some type of barriers. We got to think of of these things, but it happens. And the other thing, back in the day, we didn't have social media when Columbine happened. I think the only thing we had was something called MySpace. And we're still talking about Columbine. 23 years later, we have the 24-7 news cycle. But if we had social media in the manner we have it right now, it's it's crazy. Frank, our research shows 80 to 90% of the time, school shooters leak that they're going to do the shooting to somebody, to something. Plus, there's all the planning and the preparation that goes on ahead of time. These are not impromptu, spur-of-the-moment decisions. How much of the burden belongs to parents? Kate, I know you're aware of this, and you just nailed it as far as uh, planning. These two didn't wake up on the morning of the 20th and say, let's just go shoot up the school. This was a well-drawn-out plan that they were planning for over a year. And I get criticized a lot of times because the very first narrative to come out is these two kids were bullied and they were picked on. And there were people saying, you know, I feel badly that people lost their life, but I understand where they're coming from because I was bullied. But what bothers me is that narrative was not accurate. And I'm not saying Columbine was a perfect school, but the two made basement tapes about a year prior in the parents' household, in the basement, and they were drinking Jack Daniel whiskey, and they were playing with their guns, and they talked about what they were going to do and why they were going to do it, and they did not mention bullying going on. They talked about they believed in Adolf Hitler and survival of the fittest and social Darwinism, and they said, we're superior beings and we're going to live on forever. Well, the thing that bothers me is there were certain warning signs. Uh, The kid carries a weapon out and tells the parents, hey, it's a prop for a school play. The parents get a phone call, all your ammunition's in. Oh, you have the wrong number. You know, uh, they were actually videotaping the one room showing what they had in the room. If a parent possibly would have walked in, it could have stopped. And one of the things that was shared by one of the families when the police arrived, they said, you can't go in his room. No one's ever been in his room. And I can't help but wonder if it could have been stopped. Now, I also realize that young people are smart enough that if they want to hide it, they're going to hide it. But there are times that there are warning signs. And when something keeps coming up, you're saying, geez, I wonder, you know, do we need a reason to be concerned? Well, I think there are things that happen, right? You can't buy guns and ammunition without cash. There's a question of tracking cash and cash flow and travel to places, changes in clothing, changes in your environment, your eating habits, your medication, you stop taking them, you start taking them. Atypical behavior, behaviors that should signal to a parent, while my child is acting differently, something is underway. And what scares me more than anything is that there are copycats or imitators. All you have to do is you look at Virginia Tech, you look at Sandy Hook, 
Both of those killers mentioned Columbine as motivation. And we've learned there were actual shooters of other school shootings that actually visited Columbine as motivation to carry out what they're doing. And, and that's what's eerie to me. And this is why I'm on this mission, that these kids weren't even born. These two killers are like these cult heroes. What about the peers? Because the other thing we hear all the time is that's just snitching. I'm not going to snitch on somebody. I'm not going to snitch. However, I use this analogy. It's almost when someone comes up to you and says, everyone else's life would be better, but I don't want you to tell someone. Well, they really do want you to tell someone. How are you going to feel if all of a sudden he or she shoots someone or kills someone and you knew? And that's something you have to live with. And one of the things that was always difficult for me, I saw pictures of the two killers when they were growing up and they had missing teeth and they were in their little soccer uniforms, you know, as elementary kids. And then I saw the one pointing a gun at me and what happened in their life from the time they were in elementary school to the time they carried out what they did. And I'm sure there's people saying, did we miss something? Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. What scares me is the copycats. And it's not only here in the United States, it's happening internationally. It scares me when you hear this happening in the reference made to the two and their glorified heroes. And that worries me. We had a situation in which there was actually a young woman who came from Las Vegas. In her mind, she was married and she came from Las Vegas with the personalized license plate that said Mrs. And she tried breaking in to the school because she wanted to see where her husband died. And I mean, just the number of people that are mesmerized. And it was, uh, my memory serves me correctly. It was... uh, I think the 20-year remembrance, which would have been 2019, there was a young woman, so pious, who flew in from Florida, one-way ticket, and she wanted to see where all the kids lost their lives, and she purchased a gun, and I was at Columbine because it was the week of the anniversary, and she was able to purchase a gun within six miles, I think less than that, at Columbine, and she was heading to the school. The governor shut down all the schools in Colorado, in the metro area, uncertain 
where she was, who she was going to attack. They were concerned because they think she was looking for me and there was security for me. And they found her the next day up in Evergreen where she had taken her own. But I mean, just bizarre situations like that. And we had a situation and the FBI was called in and it always happens the week of the remembrance. I was in my office and recording again was left and it was, uh, DeAngelis, you're not going to be so lucky this time. We know where you are. And all of a sudden there was gunfire in the back. So this went on for a couple of days. Finally, the FBI came in and took over my office and they were able to track this person down. And he was a young kid in Ireland. And I didn't know this. They were concerned because I went to Dublin and I presented out there to some different groups and they had extra security for me because they weren't sure how safe I was going to be because that was kid was there. But they found out later that this kid, he was either autistic or something, and I don't know. But, I mean, stuff like that, it's, it's scary. Kate may know this. The three biggest tourist attractions in the United States are the Book Depository, where Lee Harvey Oswald was, Ground Zero, and Columbine. And I'm telling you, when I was principal... And I'd be there in the summer. There would be tour buses that would come up and take pictures in front of the building. And the sad thing about it is they wanted to see the library where a majority of the kids lost their life and were injured. The library is no longer there. We built a new library. It's called the Hope Columbine Memorial Library. Hope standing for the healing of people everywhere. And we were able to raise $3 million to build that. And so the library where all those kids lost their lives, it's not even there. And so it was, it's tough. It's tough. You know, there are 47,000 gun deaths last year. Two thirds of those are suicides. We need to deal with suicides in those situations. Of those one third, there are, are less than 100, less than 50, less than however many that might be the situation that was Columbine. And, and that leaves the whole rest of them as this other type of violence. But the type of violence that we had at Columbine has more predictability and prevention potential than any other type. I agree. And, and I think that's the difference is we have to work on the suicides and we have to work on the violence that we see in those other locations. But we also have to work on what is predictable and preventable. And so they're both bad. Um, I agree. You know, another life is one too many. I I truly believe wholeheartedly, if we had things in place that we have now, Columbine would not have happened. What would you have told yourself before? What did you wish you had known before? First of all, we have things in place right now, the 24-7 anonymous tip lines. You know, in Colorado, we have safe to tell. That's something that was not in place. Some of the drills that we had. Just you talk to all law enforcement agencies and Kate, you can attest to this. Their protocols being used now by law enforcement because of what lessons learned from Columbine. I just talked about that with people. We changed the protocols after Columbine. Well, and I can't help believing that if that school resource officer would have been able to go in immediately, I can't imagine 13 would have lost their lives. Frank, what about the training, you know, one of the things that really bothers me, particularly about Columbine, is how everybody hunkered down and nobody fled the building. I mean, certainly some fled the building, but, you know, the protocol at the time was just lockdown. 
I was the thorn in everybody's side at the White House pushing for run, hide, fight. Just the idea of whatever you're doing, escape has to be a concept. Well, you know, and I agree 100%, but what we were being told by dispatchers is don't go. My secretary could have got out of the building right at the very moment, but, you know, help is on the way, lock, hide down. Well, now it's changed. And one of the things that I think in training, there has to be situational awareness. I mean, each circumstance is going to be different. Right. You have to know these are your options. You have to have the confidence, which you understand because you've been through it. You have to have the confidence to make a decision when you don't have all the facts. Right. And then reassess 25 yards down the road. That's exactly right. If I could get people to appreciate that in training, I would be a happy person. And the thing that's so funny right now is I'm working with the priest and the community members, the parishioners are coming up to me and said, you need to talk some sense into this priest. And he's a friend of mine, but it's basically, well, this is a place of worship. And when I worked at the FBI, I used to sit in on the quarterly meetings with that Justice Department would have with faith leaders from around the country. And inevitably, somebody at a table in a room full of 50 people would turn to me to say, can you answer this question? Because there would be somebody who was a faith leader on the line who said, we just, this is a place of peacefulness and this is a place of worship. And I think that if a shooter came in, I would try to talk to him. I heard that every single meeting. Well, a principal brought me out and said, you need to try to talk to this administrator because she is not listening to us. And I walked in and she literally said to me, she said, Frank, we don't decide who lives or dies. That's God. And I said, no, it's not our choice. God's still going to decide who's going to live and die. And, and I finally went to the principal. I walked out and I said, good luck, because that, that's a scary thought. What is the hardest part about being this accidental advocate for you? you know, one of the things, believe it or not, where I get paranoid is when I know the questions because I start thinking too much what I want to say. And I love this. It was more just kind of ad lib, asking questions. And you two were fantastic. I always remember people right after it happened, they said, oh, we're going to get you speech right. I said, no, you're not. Because as soon as you do, people will say, that's not Frank. I mean, there are people a lot more articulate, but they know when I'm speaking from my heart. And I've always done that. And, and that's why, you know, I do it. I'll share a quick story. It was for the 10-year anniversary, and they wanted me to go on the Oprah show with Dave Cullum, and then Kate Batt, and then Dwayne, the FBI agent. And I said, no, it's prom weekend. I got to be here for the kids. So they did a live stream with me. It was a recording. So it was supposed to be the 10-year, and they were going to feature stories about the 13. All of a sudden, I'm in my office, and they're doing this. They break to commercial and they'll say, yes, Rachel Scott was a junior, da-da-da-da, she was in the play. Then all of a sudden, they come back and do a 20-minute segment on the two killers. And the producer said, what are you thinking? And I said, you told me this was for the community to remember, and that's not it. Well, this is what we're doing. And I said, I got to tell you, I am going to release something to this community saying, prepare yourself. So I hang up, let it go. The next night, I'm at prom. I get a phone call from Oprah, literally. And she said, Mr. D, this is Oprah. And we had a conversation. He said, Mr. D, I have respect for you. And I said, if you want to run a story 
Do it in July, do it another time, but not now. Our community is railing. There's a lot of anxiety. She said, Mr. D, I respect you, and we're going to pull the story. That's great. It's got to be hard. I mean, this has got to be hard all the time to deal with it. You're dealing with it all the time. It's a day-to-day event. It's it's tough. Well, it was such a privilege to have that conversation with Frank. And as I mentioned, Frank was so generous with his time that the actual interview is a lot longer and packed, and I mean packed, with more of Frank's mesmerizing stories and, as he would say, more of his best thinking. You can find the full interview and additional bonus content over on patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. The link, as always, is in the show notes, where you will also find a link to Frank's book. They call me Mr. D, the story of Columbine's heart, resilience and recovery, which I can highly recommend. And as a side note, you will have noted the sensor beep twice in the recording. As you know, Catherine and I don't use the shooters' names on the podcast, hence the beeps. Don't forget to subscribe because we have more incredible content coming your way next week. You can find out more on the upcoming episodes over on Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories. So until next week, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid elephants. 
What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.